today I'm very excited to be joined by Mark Thompson to talk all things tin. Mark is a highly experienced trader, investor and entrepreneur in the natural resources sector. He has a background as a base metals derivatives trader and hedge fund manager and has founded several companies. So it's a fair assessment to say he's a tin guru. The low profile metal has become a high flyer of the base metals world and in this chat, Mark will give us his view on what's driving the surging tin price, as well as his top equity picks in the sector. So let's jump straight in. The price has doubled in the past year. Can you tell us, Mark, what's changed? Well, this has been coming for, um, I hate to say it's such a long period of time, but this has been coming for nearly 40 years. This all goes back to 1985 and the collapse of an organization called the International Tin Council. Now, the ITC was a multi-government organization which was set up um, during Cold War periods to keep the tin price stable. Um, but unfortunately, over time, there being more producer members than consumer members as countries on the ITC, they kept voting for higher and higher floor prices. And eventually, it got economically unsustainable and the ITC collapsed in 1985, holding 120,000 tonnes of physical tin derivative contracts for another 180,000 tonnes uh, and with debts of 900 million pounds. And that saw in real terms, the tin price between 1985 and 1991 collapsed by, no, by 90%. Right. So it was an absolute disaster. And since then, no one's really been looking for tin. Um, and it's taken the best part of 30 years to work off the stockpiles from the International Tin Council and from another organization called the United States Defense Logistics Agency, which sold over 300,000 tons of tin from its stockpile between 1960 and 2005. Uh, and now where we are today is in a, an environment where we've got a lot of old mines which are coming to the end of their life. We've got a lot of low cost alluvial production areas in the world which are coming to the end of their life. And the world desperately needs new sources of tin supply but there just aren't that many projects out there because people haven't been looking for 40 years. Can you run us through, um, you know, what tin is actually used for? Yeah, so tin is a, it's a bit of an unusual metal. Is it's, uh, it's consumed in billions and billions and billions of individual consumer items in small amounts, and it's almost entirely unsubstitutable for what you use it for. So the biggest use, which is about 50% of the market, is in electronic solder. And electronic solder is the glue that joins together um, the components on a printed circuit board. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this is aware of the huge deficit in the world right now of semiconductor components due to a lack of capacity. So that, that demand for semiconductors is really driven, you know, not just by the, um, the COVID lockdowns and people buying more um, devices to be at home, um, but it's also uh, it's also driven by the new technologies that are in the world and by the gentrification of the world as we have an ever increasing uh, middle class across the developing developing world and people buying consumer goods. Um, and it's also driven um, by you know not just this this, this exponential growth. We, we've seen massive um, miniaturization in electronics in the last twenty years, and that's a process that's pretty much come to its end. So whereas we have had growth in demand in the overall market size for electronics for, you know, for, for a long, long time, a lot of that's been offset by technology gains in terms of the amount of tin that's required. So that's now almost come to its end. So now we're really looking at electronics demand growth of somewhere between 9 and 14% by some estimates. 
uh, against a supply growth, which is probably right, right now about negative on tin. So it's, it's, uh, it's creating kind of a perfect storm. If you look at the uses, and, and I talk about the uh, inelasticity of demand on tin, you know, if you've got an iPhone with two grams of tin in it, and then currently with $35,000 tin prices, that's seven cents of tin in a $500 item. You know, the tin price could do anything before that becomes a significant concern to an iPhone manufacturer. You know, you go from seven cents to 70 cents, it's almost an irrelevance in a thousand dollar item. Is there anything that they can substitute the tin for? Well, there are some conducting glues that are beginning to be developed, but they're very, very expensive and the technology is not there yet. And it would mean completely retooling the world's printed circuit board mm -hmm. uh, manufacturing facilities. Just in terms of this demand growth, um, the latest numbers I've seen is there's now $550 billion committed to new semiconductor production capacity around the world, $550 billion. The total tin market as of today is about $13 billion only. So it's, uh, it's an irrelevance in, in, in terms of the size of the demand uh, market for, uh, for semiconductors. So, you know, the capacity for, you know, additional demand from the semiconductor space to drive tin prices is massive. So that's 50% of the market. Next biggest uses are tin chemicals, um, which is around 15, 16% of the market. Now tin stabilizes plastics. So if you don't put tin chemicals in PVC, uh, within a few weeks, they will disintegrate in UV sunlight. So again, that use is almost unsubstitutable. There are some alternatives, but again, it would take retooling the plastics industry of the world. Um, Tin is a big additive into lead acid batteries. It massively improves the recharging uh, and lifetime of a lead acid battery. That's unsubstitutable. Um, float glass is a decent use of tin as well. So all flat glass is produced by floating molten glass on molten tin, produces perfectly flat glass. That use is unsubstitutable. So the only, the only real sector where you could see some demand loss is in the alloy sector. So bronze and sea brass, for example, Will become very expensive there are some alternatives for that um but you know there are you know bronze is that is, is just about the most finely million hard alloy there is so there's a lot of machine tooling requirements that are unsubstitutable so it's it's a perfect storm we've got very con con constrained supply we've got um a very benign outlook for additional production coming to the market and we've got rampant demand growth so um, the outlook for tin prices is at least uh, very firm and potentially explosive if we were, were to see another supply disruption in the market. Okay. And I read something about, um, you know, EV batteries. Is there other applications in, you know, solar panels, EV batteries, that sort of thematic that's very, you know, hot right now? Everything that we do in the green energy revolution, whether it be transportation or renewable energy, involves massive amounts of solar. You know, there are, you know, and, and the applications in home consumption of green energy and renewables, it's all printed circuit board upon printed circuit board upon printed circuit board. So, yes, you know, as, as, as the world goes green, tin is the forgotten metal because you, you don't necessarily need it in the batteries, but you need it in the electronics, which make the batteries work and talk to the other parts of the components. Mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. Um, so where does most of the world's tin come from at the moment? There's not very many places. Geologically, tin needs a double enrichment process to be economically mineable. Um, and it's associated with granite uh, plutons. 
So it's there's not many places in the world where that happens. So you're looking at uh, Central Africa in the DRC. You're looking at uh, Cornwall, France, Germany, the Varishkan Origini in, in, in Europe, down into the Iberian Peninsula, Southeast Asia from Thailand, Myanmar, up into Yunnan province um, in, in, in China, across Australia and uh, South America along the Andes uh, mountain chain, particularly up the northern end in Bolivia and Peru. Um, in a, a, and northeast Russia, and, you know, and outside of that, that's that's pretty much it for any significant number of um, deposits close together. World's biggest supplier is Indonesia, doing at the moment around seventy-five thousand tons, and that's mainly from marine alluvial dredging. So they dredge offshore of Banker and Belatung Islands um, in about ten to twenty meters of water, ten to twenty meters of sediments, seeking tin-rich gravels sat just above bedrock uh, in in the sea. Myanmar was the second biggest producer, probably has dropped now, dropped back, back, back down below China. That was doing 65, 70,000 tons of new, relatively newly discovered illegal deposits, but they're basically being worked out at the moment. Uh, and there's a big hit from COVID in Myanmar as well, uh, insurrection in the area in the Shan province where the tin production comes from. So they're currently, uh, their production numbers are down by over 50% um, from a couple of years ago. I don't really expect that to ever get back above 60,000 tons a year. Uh, as I said, I think the best, the best of it's been mined out. Uh, China's a big producer, um, certainly on the refined metal side, there's a lot of smelters there, and there's some mines in, um, I'd say, Yunnan province, particularly Yunnan Tin's got the Geizhou mine that does about 20,000 tons a year. Um, Peru does about 20,000 tons from the San Rafael mine. There's some production from Brazil, from Patinga, about seven or 8,000 tons. Nothing currently of any significance in Europe. There's almost no tin occurrences in North America, and there's certainly nothing economic to be mined at the moment. Um, yeah, so it's it's, it's in Australia. It's, uh, in Australia, we've got the great the great great lady, which is uh, the Renison mine in Tasmania, which has been going for nearly 150 years, and I've probably got another 50 years of mine life at least out of it. Superb mine, but it's a uh, as I say, it's a great old lady now, probably creaking at the seams a little bit, probably doing a bit a bit of investment. Yeah. And when you talked about the alluvial mining of tin, um, is, are there any negative uh, environmental aspects to that? Well, I would urge you to look at Google Earth at Belatung Island and see the horrible scars that onshore alluvial mining has left across the landscape there. It is absolutely horrible. You could look in uh, the DRC as well with the artisanal um, alluvial mining in Katanga province. Um, you know, it's un pretty much unregulated. It is zero um, uh, restoration after mining. Um, you know, the only good thing about it is it's basically, you know, water and gravity. So there's no chemicals involved, thank God. Um, but it is not an environmentally friendly way to produce it. It is typically, though, very low cost. You know, there are some tin deposits I know which run 0.03% tin as in 300 parts per million, which can be incredibly remunerative to mine because it's simple coarse cassiterite in a clay matrix so it's a dollar a ton to mine it and a dollar a ton to process it um but uh, that's the exception rather than the rule you know typically you're moving you know vast quantities of material to produce your tin mm -hmm. so uh do you think that consumers are going to differentiate between tin suppliers on the basis of esg credentials absolutely i mean this is not going away and this supply chain traceability is a big thing and I think all the tin and tungsten companies that I'm involved with, we're looking at this um, as a key um, 
customers, shall we say, differentiated between us and the rest of the pack. You know, we want blockchain traceability of everything we produce from Western world mines with the highest ESG credentials, with the lowest carbon footprint that we can achieve. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of consumers who will pay more for that traceability because also coming into this is production from Africa that does involve forced slave labor, child, you know, um, children's labor as well. So, you know, it's really important that we can get this traceability into the supply chain of the big companies so that they know they've got green, clean tin in their supply chains. You're in, you're in London. Is this a particularly big theme um, with the European regulations that have been coming through um, in regard to sort of the manufacturers and the consumption of raw materials? Yeah, this is definitely being led by uh, by the Western world economies, and I would say Europe's taken the lead on it over the last uh, you know last decade or so. Uh, Germany, in particular, so that's you know for us as first tin with our assets in Germany, you know being able to integrate you know the highest operational environmental worker you know stakeholder engagement uh, processes credentials procedures that we can and integrate that into the German industrial um, con you know production facilities is a huge opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned some of the um, countries that are tin producers um, and touched on one of the mines in Tasmania, but who are some of the other listed and unlisted tin producers and developers? Yeah, so Metals X runs, owns 50% of the Renison mine in, in, in Australia. And outside that, there's not really a lot. As I said, there's, you know, the, the big producers are either artisanal or government owned. So Yunnan Tin is a Chinese government producer, PT Timar in Indonesia has a monopoly on smelting tin in Indonesia, but there's outside that there's maybe 50,000 people involved informally uh, in artisanal, very dangerous work. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are, are, are mining offshore using masks and hose, hoses and whatever and, 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 and suction dredging um, in a very, very unsafe fashion. Uh, but in terms of the list of producers, you've got Alphamin in the, B, in, in, in the DRC, which runs the BC mine. Uh, I, Hands up, I'm a personally a shareholder. I think it's probably the best tin deposit on the planet. Um, it's currently trading on about four times earnings. It's, uh, you know, it's the DRC, so you've got security and logistics and political risk there. But in terms of geology and production, it's as good as any mine in the world gets. It's super high grade. It's 4%. Um, you know, that's off the charts. You know, you, you're talking about something which currently is, uh, I don't know, 13 14% copper equivalent. So, um, you know, that, that's fantastic. You've got minor production then from people like um, uh, Afritin in Namibia, mining the Wees deposit. A um, little bit water constrained, they need some capital to up production. Um, you know, it's pretty low grade, so that's 0 0.15, 0 0.17 compared to the 4% that they're mining in BC. But, you know, one of the things you have to be careful of is not get sucked into looking at grade on tin. You know, you have to understand, you have to understand there's only one valuable tin mineral, and that's cassiterite. And so never look at tin grades on a tin deposit, look at cassiterite grades. Uh, and then you've got to really understand the mineralogy because, you know, a 1% tin deposit with the tin being, you know, only partially as cassiterite and in the sub 50 micron grain size is basically worthless. Whereas a 0.03% tin deposit where it's coarse and coated in clay can be very valuable. So you shouldn't get too distracted by the head grade. What you could look at is the production costs uh, and whether it's cassiterite or not. And actually tin, basically, you know, they've got soft rock hosted coarse tin. So 0.15 can work really quite nicely in that, uh, in that, in, in that environment. Uh, I'm not a shareholder in Afri tin. I'm not here to, yeah. to, to big them up. I just don't want to, I don't want to be thinking that I'm dissing them compared to 
to Alpha Me, which yeah. I do own. Um, so can you explain that a bit more? Why do you? Why is that the case? So, so tin is very heavy. So it's a very dense mineral. So cassiterite itself is has got a specific gravity of up around 6.8, 6.9. So separating it from gang rocks, which are typically 2.5 to 2.7 by gravity means, so that's jigs, spirals, shaking tables, is really quite easy. So recovering recoverable tin is really cheap and really easy. Now, the, the smaller the grain size, the smaller the individual crystals of tin are, of cassiterite, as I said, you know, cassiterite's the only valuable mineral, uh, the much the more expensive it gets. So as I said, if you've got a clay-hosted alluvial deposit, it can be a dollar a ton to process a ton of host material. If you've got a fine-grained, hard rock-contained deposit, which is difficult to process, it can be $100 a tonne. So you've got this massive range of processing costs, which you typically just don't see in other metals. So, you know, you want it coarse and you want it as cassiterite and you want it um, in, in a rock matrix, which allows it to liberate as you crush it. Okay, interesting. Uh, so what are some of the other companies that you think are promising? So look, there's, you know, I've probably visited 70 or 80 tin deposits around the world. Um, yeah, a lot of these things haven't been built on last cycle for good reason. You know, and for the reasons I've just said, it's either not cassiterite or the metallurgy is difficult or the mining's difficult or they're both difficult. Um, there really aren't that many out there and there's nothing that I own apart from First Tin. Uh, I like First Tin because we're in first world country in, in Germany currently and looking at... Uh, one or two other assets which meet the same criterion, which we're, which we're interested in as well. Um, and it's coarse tin and it's cassiterite. So, you know, it's, um, you know, what else is out there is not very good. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I'm one of say I'm not gonna specifically talk about any company company and, 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 and be negative about their assets because you can never totally know everything about it. Um, but uh, there's just not a lot of places to invest. Yeah. And um, on first team, you're, you're on the board. Um, what excites you in terms of the company's future and, um, you know, some of the things they're doing on the environmental front? Well, I mean, a couple of things. You know, we have a lot of tons, you know. So we've got contained about 220,000 tons of tin, um, uh, typically around a 0.5% grade underground. Now, what's exciting about the telehousing project for first team is the mine is built. So the capital cost of bringing it into production is you know, is very, very low compared to building an underground mine from scratch. So basically it was built by the Russians and it was ready to go as a mine before the Berlin Wall collapsed in 1991. So, you know, there's some capital into these projects of something like two or three hundred million dollars of replacement cost. So, you know, 65 kilometers of underground workings, two internal 400 meter shafts, a nine kilometer at it you know, twin railway, single railway, pretty much throughout it. Um, it's a huge amount of infrastructure, um, which we get with, 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 with the project. Um, I like that it's in the first world. As I say, we call ourselves First Tin because we're in a fantastic jurisdiction, you know, relatively low tax, highly predictable, highly stable. Uh, you know, these are obviously things that in the mining industry you want. You want places with low, low tax and low royalties and uh, more importantly than anything else, a predictable legal regime that you can operate in. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's cassiterite, as I say, it, it, it's coarse and cassiterite, and we have other credits with it, so we've got zinc and indium and magnetite credits coming through, potentially aggregates as well, so it's polymetallic, lots of revenue sources, um, but underpinned by, you know, um, good grade on the tin. At, at the bottom, it's running, you know, one to two percent, so, you know, these are really good grades. Okay, 
perfect. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think the tin price is going. Well, anything, look, I, I've been, so my background really is as a, as, as a um, base metal derivatives trader, hedge fund manager. Uh, I used to run a, a metal derivatives focused hedge fund with about $800 million under management. Um, I've been doing this for a very long time. I'm a great student of the history of base metal markets. I've never seen a metal in a bigger def deficit than, than tin has been in in the first half of this year. Now, there will be a supply response, particularly from the artisanal side. But long term, you know, we need these sort of tin prices and higher to basically see the hard rock production that we need to replace the alluvial production um, basically get built. And that's a long process because there just aren't enough good projects out there. No one's been exploring for tin. The capital is not available. So I basically see, you know, the question is what price does tin go to to destroy enough demand to meet the available supply? And currently, and, and this is in an environment where demand is almost entirely inelastic. So it's one of those things that almost anything is possible. I mean, I certainly think we're going to see cash prices above $50,000 a ton in the next 12 months. And if we saw another supply disruption, um, we could see something very silly happen. Wow. Well, as a tin investor, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Danica.